Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Mwella. Matthew chapter 1, 20 through 23 reads like this. But as he considered these things, and this is uh, Joseph, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I kind of want to focus this morning's message on this last couple of verses here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Read those last few verses again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. At first glance, this is a really scandalous story. It's a story that's fit for TV. It's scandalous because it involves a virgin having a baby. Right. (laughs) I'm glad somebody got that. Because when I was reading, I was like, wait a minute, that's already kind of scandalous and weird. Right? It's also scandalous because... This pregnant, so-called virgin, right? How many of you would believe somebody that came up to you and says, oh, my gosh, I'm pregnant. And you're like, oh, man, really? Well, who's the dad? Like, there's none. You'd be like, all right. So it's not just scandalous because there's a virgin who's pregnant, but it's scandalous because this pregnant, air quotes, so-called virgin, right, is engaged to a man. It's already kind of scandalous, right? Because even it's like, okay, well, dude, he, okay. But not only is she engaged to this man, but this man does not know how this baby, how this pregnancy has occurred. So, not only is this virgin pregnant, but she's engaged to a man who does not know how his future wife became pregnant. Kind of scandalous. And it's scandalous because although this young man um, does not want to shame his fiance, he definitely is pondering putting her away, or breaking it off. Now, along with being scandalous, this story is also mysterious. Because on one hand, you have this unexplicable, unexplainable birth, or this unexplainable pregnancy. And on the other hand, you have this mysterious father. And you also have, in the midst of this, angelic visitations and fulfilled prophecies. So it's scandalous, it's mysterious, you have angels and prophets and a virgin who's pregnant, doesn't, the father don't know who the father is. You have all these great things that probably would make a great Netflix um, show. Many of you would probably binge watch it if you could, um, but it would probably make for a great Netflix original. I think I might sell the Bible to some people. But um, here's what's going on. The Bible tells us that Joseph, who is engaged or betrothed to Mary, betrothed to Mary, um, that word, especially in during that time, is a little different. So what betrothal meant was that you 
I were basically married. We just, there hasn't been a consummation yet, and there hasn't been a ceremony yet. So it was kind of a two-phase deal. And so um, scripture says that Joseph had in mind to divorce her. And so some of us might be thinking, well, why would they divorce? They're just engaged. But you have to understand in the cultural context, they were more than engaged at this moment. Um, everybody with me. So Joseph is contemplating his next move um, when an angel appears to him and offers him an explanation that ultimately clarifies the, the scandal and uh, clarifies this mystery. Now, there are all kinds of valuable things that come from this, uh, these sets of scriptures of this passage. But this morning, I'd like to focus on two specifically. And it really is the last two verses. Um, I want to focus on the prophetic significance of Christ's birth. And I also want to focus on his name that God will give him, not just Jesus, but Emmanuel. Now, the angel tells Joseph this. Don't be fearful, don't be confused, don't put her away. Um, what's going on, I'm going to make sense to you. Basically what is taking place inside of Mary is of God and it carries a heavy prophetic significance. So Joseph, don't do anything crazy, she didn't cheat on you. Um, I know this is unexplainable, but um, this is of God. And not only is it of God, but it carries a heavy prophetic historical significance. And secondly, as Matthew is telling us this story, as he is writing this story out, he also uh, makes an interesting note. He tells us um, that this child that Mary is carrying is the one that Israel has been waiting for. It's the one that Israel has been longing for. Joseph, don't divorce her because not only is this prophetically significant, but the child that this woman is carrying that you are going to or you are married to, she is carrying the one that you have been and your nation has been longing and waiting for. And you're going to call his name Jesus, and he's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us or God among us. Now, the first thing I want to look at is the prophetic sig uh, significance of the moment. Stay with me. There's probably going to be a little bit of history lesson in here, some teaching in here. Um, but I promise you it will all make sense. Um, but there is some prophetic significance. In verse 22, Matthew reminds us all these things took place to fulfill prophecy. All these things took place to fulfill prophecy. In other words, the events surrounding and leading up to the birth of Jesus carry a heavy prophetic significance and help to prove that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. I'm going to say that again. The events surrounding and leading up to the birth of Jesus carry a prophetic significance and will help prove that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah that Israel has so desperately longs for. You see, when Matthew, now we're talking about the writer of this book, when Matthew writes his book, we need to understand a little bit of context. Matthew was writing his book to a Jewish audience from a Jewish perspective. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you have to remember the original author is writing and he's writing in mind to write to a Jewish audience from a Jewish perspective. So as a result, as you read throughout the book of Matthew, you're going to constantly see Matthew referring to and highlighting aspects of the life of Jesus that carry a Jewish messianic significance. In fact, 
Two of these aspects emerge immediately in chapter 1 and help us to understand the whole prophetic picture around the birth of Jesus. And these two elements are this. Matthew includes a genealogy of Jesus, and then he also includes a reoccurring statement that he'll make throughout his entire book. So I'm going to chop down what I just said and make it easy for you. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to declare to that audience that Jesus is the long-awaited one that has been prophesied by their prophets. Which is why when you and I read or if a Gentile were to read or a Roman were to read, they wouldn't exactly understand it or it wouldn't really make much sense to them because they don't have any understanding of the Old Testament scripture. But when a Jew would read the New Testament, would read Matthew, they would know exactly what Matthew was trying to do. So what I'm going to try to do is bring you into the understanding of how the Jews would read this early, um, this early chapter. Are you with me? So... Um, here's a really interesting thing. If you're trying to read the Christmas narrative, the birth narratives of Jesus, you'll find them in Matthew and you'll find them in Luke. And Matthew does something interesting. He starts his book off with a long genealogy. Have anybody ever seen that? Uh, some of you just skip over genealogies, right? And so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, and you're just kind of like, okay, I'm going to skip over that part. So Matthew starts off his book with a long genealogy. But this genealogy is important, and I think for a lot of us, we'll skip over it. But for the Christmas story, it's really valuable that you understand why Matthew includes it. So this book, or uh, this genealogy, will trace the family line of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Now, I'm not going to read through it all, but I do want to give you a snapshot of what it looks like. So if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 2... You're going to see this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And as the chapter progresses, for the next four verses, the genealogy is going to follow the patriarchal line of Israel. So Abraham, who's next? Isaac and Jacob, right? So the, the first four verses is going to be the genealogy of Jesus starting from Abraham. Some of you are like... It's okay if you don't know. It's no worries. And then the four verses are going to continue all the way down from Abraham to Israel's second king. Now, for uh, extra bonus points, can anybody tell me who Israel's second king is? King David, right? His first king for extra points, Saul. Good. If I had a little candy, I'd be flowing, throwing it out right now. We'd be doing great. Right? So think about it this way. The genealogy starts off with Abraham. It traces all the way to the second king of Israel which is David. That leads us to verse 6 of the genealogy. Verse 6 says, and then David was the father of Solomon. Now remember, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. And for 200 years, it falls into dysfunction and chaos. As a result, God will judge his people and bring them into a period of exile. So this leads us six verses down to chapter 12, or to verse 12. And verse 12 says, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Now, here's what I want you to know. Matthew starts off the birth narrative of Jesus, starts off his gospel by writing a long genealogy that most of us skip over. 
but he put, he, he writes that gene, genealogy on purpose. He traces the line of Jesus back to David and back to Abraham. Are you with me? Finally, he ends his genealogy with verse 16 when he says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called the Christ. Now, why was this genealogy so significant to Matthew? You have to remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. And for those Jews, the promised Messiah would be a relative of Abraham and would also be a relative of David. In fact, the Jews looked forward to the day when the promised seed of Abraham would finally come to deliver them and bless the world. So Matthew purposefully includes this genealogy of Jesus to display Jesus' messianic eligibility to the Jews. You're not eligible to be a Messiah unless your line comes through Abraham and comes through David. Anybody else, you're not eligible. So Matthew includes the genealogy so that the Jews are reading this are saying, okay, Jesus checks that prophetic box off. Are you with me? Now, some of you are not Jewish, so you're kind of like, oh, whatever. But I want you to know this is huge. There's a lot of significance to this. And if we look closely, the genealogy tells the story of Advent. Now, I have the hard task of trying to get an audience to enjoy the genealogy. I understand that it's not easy. But the genealogy tells the story of Advent. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, first, here's the story the genealogy tells. God births a people by calling out a man named Abraham. And then he gives Abraham a promise. And he, of the five promises that he gives Abraham, one of the promises says, of your seed, the entire world will be blessed. So from the beginning, when, when God calls Abraham out and gives him a promise, from your seed, the entire world will be blessed, the clock starts to tick. And guess what happens? An anticipation begins to take place. Who is this seed? When will this seed come? And how will this take place? Are you with me? Now, secondly, after hundreds of years of wandering, sojourning. You know what sojourning means? It means just staying in a place. It's not your home. You're just kind of wandering. After hundreds of years of wandering, sojourning. Slavery, the slavery of Exodus. You guys remember that story. This nomadic people reached the pinnacle of their power and influence under the direction of their second king, and his name was David. Now, this is important. Israel reaches the power and pinnacle of its influence under King David. Now, here's what I want you to know about David David isn't the Messiah. But he's a type or a shadow of the one who is to come. Are you all with me? It's David's kingdom is just a glimpse of the Messiah's kingdom. So Israel goes through years of sojourning and slavery. And they finally, remember, they break out of Exodus in a miraculous way. They wander the wilderness. They go to the promised land. They settle in the promised land. And years and years of settling in the promised land, they finally ask for a king. The first king's name is Saul. What's the problem with Saul? Saul looks good from the outside, but his inside. Oh, come on, ladies. Come on. Let me preach that Christmas message right there. Saul looks good on the outside. You ever want to just turn some brothers inside out? You'd be really scared. Okay. 
man, this is a tough crowd, man. Come on, guys. Fake it at least. If it's not funny, I just somebody like, well, you're not funny. That's fine. Just fake it for me. Okay. So their first king looks good on the outside, but the problem is, is he's ugly on the inside. And so God rejects this king and then brings in a second king, and his name is David. And David, the beautiful thing about David, David is in the backside of the wilderness watching the sheep, and he's tending his father's flock. And David has a humble heart. David has a repentive heart. And David has a heart after God. And so David becomes the second king of Israel, and that's the king that God anoints. Then David ushers Israel into an unprecedented time of success. And Israel, see, all these years prior to David, Israel has been in the middle of battles and wars. And Israel has been sojourning. And Israel has been looking to become a people. David finally unites the kingdom and makes them a people. And they reign under God. Are you with me? So everybody looks at David as the one, the example, the model of what this Messiah will ultimately look like. He becomes the type or the shadow. Now, typical of any shadow, it doesn't last very long. Right? Remember we told you what Advent teaches us. Christmas is only a shadow of something greater. So if you put your hope and your joy in Christmas, it's going to let you down. So typical of a shadow, it doesn't last. So what happens? David dies. David then empowers his son Solomon then Solomon dies, and then we go into 200 years of darkness for Israel. 200 years of kings that are backstabbing, that are sinful, that are idolatrous, that are worshiping idols. They worship Yahweh, and they worship Baal. They are, it's called religious syncretism. They're mixing in religions. And so not only are they worshiping God, but they're also worshiping the gods of the nations that are around them. You ever try to get a little bit of both? <laughs> I got my God on Sunday, and then I got my God every other day of the week. That's called you trying to mesh it together. That's not good for the Israel. And so they go through 200 years of darkness to the point where God is fed up. Because since David and Solomon, the kingdom has just become this faithless mess. And so God sends judgment to his people. And a lot of you think judgment is bad, but judgment is a form of correcting. And so his people go into a time of exile where people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and take Israel captive. Are you with me? So like a typical shadow, it doesn't last very long. Israel enters into a dark season and the nation is torn apart and ultimately the Old Testament will end with Israel kind of in this place in Babylon. I'm not in my home. I'm exiled. We've lost the splendor of our monarchy. We've lost the line of the Messiah. Our kings have now become servants and slaves to emperors surrounding us. We pay tribute. We are no longer a sovereign nation. Our borders and our boundaries have been erased. What do we have? And the story of Israel is really, really sad. They write psalms to God in their exile saying, God, where are you? Where is our nation? Where is our kingdom? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. 
Now, as bad as that all sounds, here's what judgment and darkness does. We talked about this last week. It causes the faithful to pray. Judgment and darkness causes the faithful to pray. And it causes them to ask this question. Will we ever go back to the days of David? Will we ever see the promised one of Abraham? Will we ever have hope again? And that prayer and that question begins to cause a stirring in the faithful to begin to look at their history and pray for another deliverance. Because in that time, listen to this, in the time of despair and in the time of darkness, the faithful will go back to their memorials. Remember Exodus. Remember when we were taken out of Exodus. Remember when we were delivered. Remember when we were surrounded on all sides. Our history is a history of ones that are going into slavery, but God is always what? Bringing deliverance. Are you with me? And right when it feels like in the genealogy that there's nothing but darkness, right when it feels like darkness will never end, everything culminates with the birth of a baby from a virgin. And Matthew concludes everything by saying this in verse 17. Matthew chapter 117 says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You see that? Kind of weird, right? So 14 generations from Abraham to David... And then 14 more generations from David to Babylon exile. And then from Babylon exile to the birth of Jesus, 14 more generations. You guys see a little pattern? What's the pattern? 14. Cool. I'm going to get weird on you. Guys, ready to get weird? Three sets of 14 provide a prophetic significance to the genealogy of Jesus. 14 is the Hebrew numerical value for the name David, okay? 14 is the Hebrew. Now, to you, it's kind of like, okay, some of you are like, wow, some of you are like, but for Hebrews, that was important for them. There was a numerology in this. 14 is the numerical value of the name of David in the, in the Hebrew language. Now, why is that important? It's not random, and it's not coincidental. But this is Matthew's way of pointing out to his Jewish audience that Jesus is not only the son of David, but he is the one greater than David. He is the prophetic one, the perfect David. He is the reality to the shadow. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy, the one that will come from Abraham, the one that will come from David, the one who will bring an end to tyranny to your people. Are you with me? Now this gets me excited. Why? Here's why I'm excited. God is faithful to his promises. Here, here's an amazing thing. Scripture tells us that God keeps watch over his word. Can you imagine that? Scripture paints a picture of a God who keeps watch over his word, making sure that every promise that he makes is fulfilled. 
Do you know that the one thing that God keeps watch over is his promises? Can you imagine a God who stands outside of time and space and looks in it? Because he's not limited by time. You and I are, right? He looks throughout the entire history of man and he keeps watch over his promises, making sure that even when man messes the promise up because he promised it, he'll bring it to pass. Say that again because I pretend like you're excited. God stands outside of time and space and he declares a promise and he makes sure that his promise throughout history, even in disregard even if man messes up that he gives his promise for man to carry and even if man messes the promise up he still watches over it because because he spoke you because he spoke it because he spoke it I want you to know that when God makes a promise and you carry it it's not your integrity that's on the line it's his integrity he spoke the promise and no matter how much you fumble the promise no matter how much you even despise the promise some of y'all like to run away from that promise, y'all, y'all notice that you run away, and God's like, "I'm still here. You can't run. You can't run. It doesn't matter where you go. You haven't been to church in eight months. You've been running away, and I'm still right here in the middle of this place." You understand? And, and then you start realizing this false theology that God is at church, and that's the only place that it's not true. He's in your bedroom. He's in your car. He's at your workplace. He's wherever you're at. Some of us have been, I trust me, I know it. I ran for a long time. And after a while, those that are wise just say, okay, I got to stop running because it's just not working. He's kind of everywhere. I can't run. Because God keeps watch over his promise. And it's not on you whether it comes to fruition. When he speaks it, it's on him. And so even if you mess it up, he is still watching over it. So even when Israel thought that God had abandoned them, God was still on the throne. Even when they were in despair, God was still on the throne. Even when they were in exile, God was still on the throne. Even when they were at the height of their power and influence, God was on the throne. Even when the nation was torn in two, God was on the throne. Even when the nation experienced 200 years of corrupt kings, God was still on the throne. And there was nothing man could do to take away from God's promise. You see how the enemy and how man tries to work together and how sin tries to work together to destroy the promise. And God is still setting it up. 14, 14, 14. See how God is so faithful over that? Oh, man. Thank God. You mean in the midst of all my mistakes, in the midst of all my mishaps, my wrong turns, in the midst of all the times that I did wrong, God was still sovereign in this situation, that there was still a promise over my life? Yeah. 14, 14, 14. When you and I read the genealogy, it looks like chaotic mumbo jumbo and you see a bunch of distress. When you're, you know what's crazy about the genealogy and why we don't appreciate it? Because we're not in it. We're looking at it from long distance, but when you're in the midst and you're in it and the genealogy is still being written, it feels like it's despair. When are we coming out of this thing? And God's saying, I'm shepherding this thing all the way through. Man. And then Matthew does something really interesting. He says this in verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. 
Now, here's the interesting thing about Matthew. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, right? So the Jewish audience is going to be very interested in this genealogy. But here's another thing that the Jewish audience is going to be very interested. Is Jesus' life lining up with Old Testament prophecy? Right? Because he, we will disqualify him as Messiah if he doesn't do the, the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. And so throughout the book of Matthew, if you read it on your own time, which I hope you would, you'll, you'll see over nine times this reoccurring phrase, and this was done to be fulfilled, or and this was done to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And so Matthew was constantly pointing to the life of Jesus and saying, look what Jesus did here. And then I want you to bring it back to what Isaiah said here. See how Jesus fulfilled that? You guys get that? So over nine times in Matthew, he will say Jesus did this in order to fulfill this prophecy. And then he'll usually follow that up with an Old Testament quotation. Now Matthew's purpose behind this, and I kind of told you all this, was to demonstrate to his Jewish audience that the events of Jesus' life are actual fulfillments of Old Testament longings and expectations. This leads us to the name Emmanuel. If you read Matthew chapter 1, 22 through 23, it says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, say it with me, Emmanuel. Matthew takes us back 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus in the time of prophet Isaiah at a moment when a king by the name of Ahaz who is the king of Judah, is about to fall into an alliance with Assyria. And although Ahaz has placed his hope for salvation in a human king, Isaiah calls for Ahaz to repent and reconsider and place his hope in a divine king. But as you know the story, because we went over it a little bit last week, Ahaz denies this. Although Ahaz is the heir to David's throne, so I want you to know that King Ahaz comes from the long line of David. He's a part of the messianic lineage. He forsakes the Lord's offer and aligns himself with Assyria and places the nation of Judah in the hands of a foreigner. Now this is 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Are you with me? Now listen, the line of David rules over Judah. So when Solomon, so Solomon is the third king of Israel. After Solomon dies, remember I told you that Judah goes into chaos, right? Or I mean Israel goes into chaos and then something happens. Israel splits into two kingdoms. Do you remember that? One of them was Israel and the other one was what? Judah. And Israel and Judah lived split. And so there's no longer one nation, but they're split. And in that split, there's fighting, there's chaos. They go into exile. They're taken advantage of. But throughout the split, the kings of Judah are still following the lineage of David. Are you with me? So the line of the Messiah is still preserved during that time. Are you with me? I know it's going to be, I'm trying to preach the genealogy today, a little bit of history. I promise we're going to get to some preaching in a second. So the line of David rules over Judah. This means that the Abrahamic and Davidic promises flowed by the way of Judah and the dynasty of David. But because Ahaz, because of his unbelief, Judah loses its sovereignty to a foreign nation. And Ahaz's decision to trust Assyria over God 
places the messianic line in danger of being cut off forever. And so the question becomes this. How will God restore the lost throne of David and not just save Israel but save the entire world? So Isaiah answers that question with a prophecy. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Ahaz, king of Judah, who's part of the line of David, makes a bad decision, goes into alignment with a foreign king. That foreign kingdom takes over Judah and puts the, the, the Davidic line in jeopardy. Are you with me? All right. And the question becomes... Man has put the, the, the messianic line in danger. It's going to be cut off. It's going to be destroyed. How will God preserve it now? And then Isaiah answers that question with a prophecy. In Isaiah 7, verse 10 through 12. And then I'm going to read verse 14. Isaiah answers the question, how will God restore the Davidic line? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. Now we skip to verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. <laughs> so Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask of a sign. I don't want a sign. I've already made my decision. I'm aligning myself with Assyria. And then, then God says, okay, if you're not going to ask for it. I'm going to give you a sign myself. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here we go. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before Christ is born, Isaiah gives a prophecy to Judah and Ahaz, who's about to go into captivity, that there's going to be a sign that's going to come and it's going to be a virgin having a son. Are you with me? And that virgin son is going to be called Emmanuel. So built into this prophecy is an answer to the longing of Christmas and to the longing of Israel. The Lord himself will do what man cannot do. If the human king could not respond, then the divine king himself will take the initiative. Now watch, the divine initiative will not be a set of powerful signs and wonders and tricks and clouds and burning sulfur and all of these great things that he's done in the past, right? In Exodus, he has delivered his people through miraculous signs and wonders. But this time it's going to be different. You're not going to get a demonstration of my power through a sign or through a wonder. But you are going to get this time God himself. To finish the job. What, what the human king can't do and never could do, I myself will do. I will bring you a sign and that sign is going to be Emmanuel. Are you with me? In other words, God says he will come down himself and accomplish what you cannot accomplish. He will come down himself and do what you cannot do. He will come down himself and protect what you can't protect. And he will guide what you cannot guide. This, you don't want a sign, then I'll give you a sign myself. The virgin will have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. His name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel in the Hebrew, it means God with us or God among us. I'm going to invite Will to come up. It means God with us or God among us. And Matthew declares, now Matthew declares 
that the prophecy Isaiah has given to us is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was born to the Virgin Mary. Now, here we go. When we started this Advent series, we talked about how Advent teaches us three things. Advent teaches us to look behind Christmas, right? To look at all of the things that led up to Christmas. Because we are so over-commercialized by Christmas and we have our own definitions of Christmas. But we have to understand that Christmas is the result of long-awaiting, long-longing, waiting, looking, watching. Christmas is the result of a nation that's gone through hell and back. Of a people that has gone through hell and back. Christmas morning, which we'll be celebrating here for one hour. <laughs> 10 to 11, I promise. Christmas morning is the result of a long-awaited anticipation for one like David to bring a chaotic kingdom back into restoration. When will this one come and bring us back our home? When will this one come and deliver us from exile? When will this one come and deliver us from submitting under foreign kings and foreign rulers? When will this one come? 700 years before he comes, they're desiring for him to come. Are you with me? So Advent teaches us that you can't understand Christmas until you understand everything that leads up to it. Advent teaches us to step into the longing of Israel. Can you imagine that? To step into the longing of Israel. But Advent doesn't just teach us to look back, but it also teaches us to look at Christmas. To look at that beautiful morning. To look at the circumstances of that morning. In fact, we'll be doing that next Sunday. To look at the circumstances. You have a young girl and a husband, she's pregnant, on a donkey, trying to find her way into the end. There's no room. They're brought into a stable, a cave-like area. Jesus is born in a trough, cold. It's not the beautiful scene that we're used to seeing. We commercialize even that. It's a really dirty, cold scene. This king of the universe in all his splendor and his glory comes down in the poorest of poorest place. He identifies himself with the poorest of the poor. He identifies himself with the homeless. Can you imagine the king of the universe on his day of being born chose to be born in a time where his, they were homeless. They didn't have a place to go. Can you imagine how cold it was? We're told to look at Christmas. And then Advent says to look beyond it. To don't just stop at Christmas, but to look forward and look beyond it. To a time when that king will come again for his people. Now, I'd like to us, as I finish here, and as we have the worship team ready to come up, and I'm going to actually ask my brother to help me. Mikey, if you could bring this down for me. In our, in our meager location, we have such a, I got to get off the stage because I don't think there's enough room for everybody. So keep giving us your offering so we can buy more stage. Amen? No, that wasn't a joke. Okay. In fact, ushers, can you? Just kidding. 
So I'd like us to remember these three elements of Advent. And we're, we're coming to the finish line here. To look behind Christmas, to look at Christmas, and to look beyond Christmas. I want us to remember these three elements as we look at the word, the name Emmanuel. We're going to look behind the name. We're going to look at the name and look beyond the name. Are you with me? Let's talk about Emmanuel behind. The powerful truth of God with us, Emmanuel, has always been a part of Scripture. In fact, all of Scripture is saturated with Emmanuel. You see, before Christmas morning, Emmanuel had already been around. Well, what do you mean by that? We first see Emmanuel in Genesis with Adam walking in the cool of the day. See, in that moment, God was with man. Yet because of sin, God's interactions with man generally become more remote and less accessible. Yet Emmanuel is still found throughout Scripture. He's with Abraham in a vision. He's with Abraham and telling him, don't kill your son. He's with Moses appearing to him at one of his lowest moments in his time where he's in the backside of the wilderness, again, tending a father's sheep. Isn't that interesting? It just keeps happening. You see the type and shadow? You see the type and shadow of Jesus? It's all over the place. The Old Testament's writing about Jesus in David in the backside of the wilderness watching sheep. In Moses in the backside of the wilderness watching sheep. There's always something to be said about a faithful son in a, in a hiding place who's being faithful to watch over his dad's sheep. And we find God with us as he appears to Moses in the bush. But that's not all. We find God with us as the mighty hand of God takes the children of Israel out of Exodus. And he brings them through the waters. Psalm says that the presence of God was in the waters. And the waters, the waters parted and lifted. And as the people walked through, there was a wall of water. It was a border and a boundary. You know what that meant is as they were walking through dangerous territory, the hand of God was creating a way through. Do you understand? Emmanuel was with his people in that moment. And we see Emmanuel in a time where they can't see him. It's dark. Israel's lost its kingdom. We are now bowing ourselves to foreign lands and foreign emperors who are treating us terribly. We've lost our culture. We've lost our dignity. We've been stripped away of our national identity. We are in a hopeless place. We are in exile. We are no longer in our homeland. In fact, our cities are burning. We are under the reign and rule of Babylon. We can't hear him. We can't see him anymore. Has he abandoned us? But God raises up prophets in this season. It says, even though you're in judgment now, there's hope. Say, so even in the midst of their darkness, Emmanuel is there raising up faithful men and women of God to stir up longing and hoping for something better. Are you with me? But the problem is we all have a yearning. To know God more intimately. We all want to know, will there come a day when we get to see him face to face? We all want to know, will there come a day when we get to know his name and he'll know my name? Will there come a day? Will we see a day where Emmanuel, who has come to us in all kinds of mysteries, will reveal himself 
perfectly and fully to us. We all have a longing. Is there really a God and will he really show up? And will I really see him face to face? I'm not just talking about seeing him in my brother and my sister. I'm saying, is there a day where I will see God? We all have that longing. Even Solomon, the wisest man in the universe, in the world, he made this comment in 2 Chronicles 6.18. Will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? Solomon, the wisest man in the world, asked that question. Will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? And in his grace and mercy, God answers through the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will have a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. See, Emmanuel has been with us this whole time. But then Emmanuel has also come. So we're going to look behind Emmanuel. We'll look at Emmanuel. We no longer have to guess what God is like. We no longer have to consider or debate about what God would do or react or say to a circumstance or a situation. Because we now know. Because Matthew has declared to us that a virgin did conceive. And yes, she was a virgin. And yes, she was. She did conceive. And guess what? Joseph didn't divorce her. And she had a son, and she named him Jesus, who is the embodiment of the message, Emmanuel, God among us. Not God without us. Not God against us. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Not God above us. Not God below us. But a God who is right next to us. Scripture says, John says, that he put on flesh. And the Bible says the Greek word is he actually set, it says it dwelt among us. The Hebrew is he set up a tent. He pitched a tent, which means that he came alongside of us and he camped with us. While for Isaiah, Emmanuel was a sign of God's deliverance of Israel from temporal trouble. You see, when Isaiah was prophesying this, they were waiting on an Emmanuel who would come to deliver them out of temporal trouble. Bring us back, Israel. Give us our land back. Give us our nation back. But for Matthew, Emmanuel was much deeper than that. Emmanuel now becomes a sign of God's deliverance for all those who are trapped in sin. For all those who are trapped in bad decision making. For our hearts and our minds that are wicked no matter how much good we try to do externally internally there's this something inside of us this decision making inside of us this fight inside of us Paul says oh wretched man that I am so Emmanuel for Isaiah was a physical deliverance from physical tyranny but for Matthew Emmanuel it's a deliverance from your sin and your inability to walk righteous before God A well-known Methodist leader from the 18th century named John Wesley said this right before he died. It said that right before he died, he opened his eyes. And before he took his last breath, he said, best of all is God is with us. Then he closed his eyes, fell asleep in Jesus, his Emmanuel. The famous British pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon once said, Emmanuel 
God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather within me in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and the second advent splendor. William Cowper, an English poet, penned these words. There was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. Matthew opens his book in chapter 1 declaring Emmanuel, God with us. And then he closes his book, like Mikey said so prophetically. I'm going to say that again. Matthew opens his book, God with us, chapter 1, Emmanuel. And then he closes his book. By saying in Matthew 28, behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. I promise you we're done here. Matthew, Emmanuel, we're going to look behind. He's always been with us. We look at, Emmanuel has come, and finally we look beyond and we look forward to another Emmanuel, another time. Jesus became our Emmanuel on earth so that he can be our Emmanuel throughout eternity. One day we will see, with, we will see Jesus. One day we will be with Jesus. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. Revelation 5 verse 6 says this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb that was standing there as though he had been slain. He says, I saw a lamb there. Wait, this is in the future when Jesus comes back. I saw a lamb there. And then he, he adds something really interesting. I saw a lamb as if he was slain. Did you know that the wounds of Jesus were made visible to his disciples? But did you know that the wounds of Jesus will remain for all of us to see? Did you know the wounds still remain so that when we stand before him, you and I are going to see those wounds? It's been said that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on our Savior. It's been said that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars of our Savior. You see, the first heaven and the first earth will pass away, but the Lamb's scars will never pass away, testifying to his unfailing love and unbreakable covenant and promise that he made a long time ago with Abraham. Last quote. Charles Spurgeon says this. Worship team, get ready. Charles Spurgeon says this. Wonderfully true is this fact. When you and I come to the closing scene of life, we will still find that Emmanuel, God with us, has been there. He felt the pangs and the throes of death. We will be raised in his likeness and the first sight of the opening of our eyes, we will see the incarnate Lamb of God with us. We will see him as man and as God. And throughout all eternity, he will maintain the most intimate relationship with us. As long as the ages roll, he will be God with us. Emmanuel. Advent is about stepping into the longing of Israel. Advent is about stepping into the hope of something better. Advent is about the coming of Jesus, and he will come again.
Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com.